Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, our podcast going beyond the bads to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Bryn Hinson, and today we have the pleasure of welcoming a guest who served as a special agent in the FBI for 26 years. She's not only an accomplished author writing crime fiction books, but she's also a fellow podcaster where she interviews her former bureau colleagues and they talk about some of the most intriguing and high-profile cases they've been involved in. And you know, I, I try to do a little short tease of our guests before I do their full introduction after I bring in our host. But Mike Warren, there, there's so much to mention about our guest today. I'm having a hard time not listing every major accomplishment because her work is quite impressive. Well, and I couldn't agree more. I'm really excited about the day because last week uh, here in Michigan, we did a, one of our live training events and the co-speaker on that particular day happened to be a former guest of our guest today on her podcast, Kyle Vowinkle. And one of the reasons why he actually came over the night uh, of the class and we sat out on our back porch and and spent some time talking and it was so enlightening to me because oftentimes brent we think we know something that turns out not to be true my wife reminds me of that all the time by yes the way. yes <laughs> i'm reminded pretty daggone often myself <laughs> but but you know it, it's it's one of those things i enjoy getting the story straight because only when we have the story straight can we make true judgments about what's going on and, and my conversation with kyle straightened out some things for me and i'm hoping that we're going to have the same thing today i think that'll probably be true just based on one of her books which we'll talk about just debunking some of those myths which was uh, really enlightening which i kind of knew based on our conversations with uh gary nesner and kyle von winkle but it's just enlightening to read some of the things that she put I'm excited about today because, uh, you know, the old saying goes, uh, what's really problematic is when what you know isn't so. And so what I'm looking for today is finding out what isn't so. So why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest and let's bring her on here. Well, as I mentioned earlier, our guest today is a retired FBI special agent, but her definition of retirement differs from most because she's now using the experiences she's encountered during her time in the Bureau and the expertise from her storied career to provide firsthand insight about specific cases on her podcast, FBI Retired Case File Review, which she's been doing this for a while, long before us. It started way back in 2016, and you can hear episodes on her website as well as all the popular podcast providers. Now, in addition to writing fiction books, she's also authored the book FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, which is perfect for fans of true crime. I've merely scratched the surface of all of her career accolades. We are incredibly fortunate to welcome Jerry Williams to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Looking forward to the conversation. So am I. This is so great. I you know, get to go on different podcasts, but it's even more special when it's a podcast that highlights and showcases law enforcement and first responders, because, you know, that's, that's what I do. You know, that's what I'm interested 
and uh, showcasing myself. So this is going to be great. Is it okay if I call you Jerry? Oh, please. Yeah. So I always have to ask permission. We had, we had my mom on the podcast recently and I was reminded, you know, by, by my, my very Southern mom about proper protocol. So we're going to make sure. So if you're okay with it, Jerry, I listened to your podcast and you and I, I found out that we have some similarities in the way in which we conduct uh, our interviews, but I typically ask our guests, what was it that drew them to this profession to begin with? Was What was the draw? Well, I majored in psychology in college. And the first job that I got right out of college was aftercare counselor, also known as a juvenile probation officer. But I got the kids that were sent away to placement centers, group homes, reform schools. And so it was called aftercare because I helped them transition back into the community uh, after they, they served their time away. And this was in Virginia. And I did that for three years and I loved it. But it was emotionally draining because I had just graduated from college myself. I was 23, 24, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old. And it, it was just heartbreaking. I mean, the kids were constantly in trouble. And, you, you know, you think about juvenile probation, but they're doing the same things that adults were doing. You know, they were doing the home invasions and the break-ins and the assaults. And uh, almost every girl that was on my caseload, you know, was, um, and we know now that they were, we could call it sexual abuse because they were so young, but they were sex workers, uh, having been convinced to do that by their quote-unquote boy friends. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a tough job, especially with me being so young and, and not having, you know, the benefits of being a parent myself and, and being asked to parent in a sense, you know, these kids. And, and that's a long way of saying the, the way that I got into actual law enforcement, because that was a quasi law enforcement job. Absolutely. I mean, these kids were incarcerated and had been adjudicated and all of that stuff. But uh, I got into the FBI because I saw a newsletter that said that the FBI was looking for more women and for minorities. Now, this is back in 1982, so over 40, 41 years ago. I'm old. <laughs> I, went, I was listening to a, a, another podcast earlier this morning. They, they were talking about how, you know, there was this guy that he had done this fraud, but he was doing classic wine bottles, these old wines, you know, and he would mix the, uh, and, but the thing is, they said, you know, this wine that was like 40 or 50 years ago. And I was thinking to myself, well, but the wine was 50 years ago. It was thinking made in the seventies. And that's ridiculous because I was born in the seventies. You know what I mean? Oh, God. <laughs> so it's, I guess I'm classic. I'm not old. I'm yeah. just classic, right? Oh, well, then I'm. I, I, I'm old because I, I graduated from college in, in the 70s. So. I was just on vacation. I saw a coffee mug and it said something that happened 20 years ago. You think it was in the, the 1970s and it was the 90s, you know? <laughs> so ridiculous. It makes me feel old now. Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. You, you know, you brought it up and actually a couple things I wanted to kind of expound on there. Uh, number one was the juvenile work. 
When you go back to uh, President Obama, when he put forth the uh, President's Task Force on Policing in the 21st Century, and, and this this group went out to find out what we could do to improve law enforcement in the nation. And one of the things that they found what was that we need to do a better job in the juvenile side of things and in probation and parole, but yet those tend to be some of the most underfunded parts of the criminal justice system. And you were talking about helping kids transition back into the community, especially when we're talking about juveniles. They're going to be coming back into the community, and we as society have to do a better job of preparing them for that. Absolutely. And I think the thing that I know more than anything else is that these kids are coming from an environment where they really don't have much of a chance unless somebody comes in and helps them. Because many of the uh, kids on my caseloads, their parents had been in the system, had been on the caseloads of the older probation officers who were uh, working with me. And so, you know, what chance did some of these kids have, you know, if that's the environment they're living in, where people are going in and out of prison, in and out of jail, who are believing that, you know, the only way they can get anything in life is to take it or to steal it. You know, it's sad, but they didn't have much of a chance. And, you know, you tried your best to, to steer them. And there were some great stories, some success stories, where maybe one of the kids in the family, you know, that you're working with, um, because we did a lot of family therapy, you know, makes it out and gets to college and becomes an attorney. And I've seen those stories. I've, you know, I know those stories to be true. But the rest of the kids, you know, they just learn from their parents. Well, and you couldn't be any more correct. I just finished reading Colin Powell's book at work for me. And you know, I've read his autobiography and he came from a neighborhood that wasn't the best. And he went to school with kids that perhaps were making some bad life choices. But the reason why, by and large, he made it out, if you want to call it making it out, was because of the example and the expectations that his parents had for him. Right. And so if your parents don't have any expectations for you, then, I mean, you're lost. Unless somebody on the outside, a teacher or a probation officer, reaches in and lifts you up. Absolutely. And unfortunately, it requires that intervention. So so my wife is a, is a police officer. She actually serves uh, as a middle school SRO at my former agency. And one of the things that I didn't consider because I'm not that bright during COVID was when we started locking things down. And we started doing this uh, this school by, in the same, similar way we're doing this recording right here. She says, you know, what, what about the kids where school is their safe place? Mm. Where, where, where home isn't a safe place to be. This is where kids come. They get good food. They can let their guard down. Uh, man, I tell you what, as society, I don't know what the answer is, but it's not what we're doing right now. Right. And not only food and being able to let their guard down, just attention, just somebody who cares, somebody who's going to listen to them, somebody who's going to take the time to ask them, you know, how they're feeling. I think that's why I never had a kid that was on my caseload that didn't show up. They showed up when they were supposed to, because this is their time to, for someone to, to ask them questions, to, to show they care about them. And again, I've established that relationship with them because why they were away, I sometimes may be the only person 
from the community that even went to visit them. And sometimes if I, not sometimes, but whenever I went to these different, and this is Virginia, you know how, how wide Virginia yes. is. And there were reform schools and placement centers and group homes all over that these kids could be sent to. When I went, when I had to travel to, to go to these places to check on the kids that were from Newport News, I usually drove a van and took their parents with me, you know, took their relatives with me because that may be the only chance of them to see them because they didn't have vehicles or couldn't find the time to go. And, you know, when I begged them or or offered, you know, to take them, then, you know, hopefully many of them, you know, did take their, uh, take that up. Yeah. So I was their connection. So when they got back to the community, they, you know, they enjoyed me, you know, they enjoyed spending time with me. We have a superintendent in town who often gets criticized because he doesn't cancel school when there's icy roads until the very last minute. But I read an interview with him where he said, I do that because if I cancel school, there's a number of kids that aren't going to eat that day. And I did not take that into consideration until I heard him say that. It's astounding. Yeah, but so true. So, so true. Well, you know, Jerry, it's a, to going back to Cal Vowinkle for a second, uh, we've had him on the podcast here a, a couple times, and then he also did a course for us last week. The course was built around the case study of that Alabama incident where the, uh, the guy went on the school bus, killed the school bus driver, and kidnapped the kid. One of the things he said last week that really resonated with me was the mom never came to the scene that an agent had to be assigned to her and kind of served as the liaison with her. And I'm thinking to myself, as a parent, as a citizen, my goodness, how could you not make that scene? And you just kind of alluded to it that you had to beg the parents in many cases to come visit their own kids when they were away. And we wonder why kids end up in the system. Yeah. It's sad. And, you know, and I, we might get into this, but when we talk about incarceration and the high levels of incarceration and, and why that is, we've got to start way back in the early, early ages of these kids. Just show some compassion. I mean, I have been in so many homes, even as, a, as, as an agent, but definitely as a juvenile probation officer that were dark, you know, no sunlight was coming in. The, you know, the windows were closed. It was stuffy. And the only light was the light of the TV. And then every kid in that home and, and the mother in that home, and it usually was the mother, all they're doing is watching that TV all day long. And that's, there's no communication. And it's just so sad, you know, to go into a home and see that there's a baby, you know, that I, I love babies. So, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to pick up the baby as I'm trying to conduct my, you know, interview uh, and, you know, investigation. And there's no interaction from the baby. You know, the baby's not cooing. The baby's not talking to me. It's just the saddest thing. And yeah, we need to start way, way earlier than we start when we talk about prevention. Well, Jerry, you and I are going down a rabbit hole, but it's a rabbit hole that's become very dear to me over the past few months as I've been doing some research on things. And there is a big push in American society to increase the representation of certain populations in our college ranks. And I am all for it because education provides opportunities and options to people. The problem is that intervention needs to take place way earlier than freshman year of college. It needs to start in kindergarten so that people are properly prepared 
for college when they get there. And that's where we're going to start getting the better results. We tend to wait until things are almost impossible to get back on track. And then there's this, this massive intervention. It's so sad, the wasted potential. Absolutely. I love that word, you know, potential, because we know that at the beginning, all of us, you know, have the same potential. It's just a matter of that, you know, those opportunities and that intervention. And it's just so sad that there are segments of our population that are not going to see those opportunities and are not going to be able to reach their potential. So I, I went to high school in Southwest Virginia and my dad still lives down in that area of the state there. there there's a song, me, me and Brent and Aaron on the podcast here, we, we love a lot of music. And there's this one called Small Town. And it says, you know, too often in small towns, uh, you're told not to dream too much or reach too high. If everything goes right, you can end up where your parents were. And in so many cities and in so many parts of the country, that's the aspiration. And if the parents are, as you pointed out, incarcerated or they're already in the system, then now we have this generational thing and it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to be have to be intentional, but I think we can break it. We just had to be willing to make the investment as, as a country. Yes, as a country. Yes, absolutely. I can imagine how draining that had to be for somebody coming out of college uh, who probably is full of all types of ideas on how I can change and impact the world. That has to be incredibly tiring for you. So I can understand the desire to change careers. But you came into the FBI and, and you said it, that they, they were looking to hire more females and more minorities because, and, and I know you love the Bureau. I don't think there's a bigger champion of the FBI than, than perhaps you, but they haven't always had a good reputation when it comes to their treatment or inclusion of females and minorities. So, so you kind of were a trendsetter. I mean, you, you were part of the, of the wave that really changed the face and the composition of the FBI. Yeah. And I do think I, I, I have to say that, you know, from that beginning, from in, in the late 70s and the 80s, when the FBI really was campaigning and recruiting to get more women and more minorities into the Bureau, they've continued to do so. Whatever they're doing, though, hasn't worked that well. <laughs> so when I came in, 5.8% of the workforce were women. And so that meant with that number being 400 and something at the time, and, and we had 56, 57 offices, I think at, at the time we had 57 offices, that means that there was just a sprinkle of, you know, women here and there and, and all the offices. And so even 10 years after the FBI had started to hire women, there were still very few women in the different offices. But when it came to black women, I mean, I think I was number 22 or 23, you know, having been hired at the time. And so I rarely saw anybody who, who looked like me. And one of my first offices was Sacramento. I was the only black employee wow. in the entire office. Yeah. And so, yeah, there were times during that period because of the aggressive things that the FBI was doing to try to get more women and, and minorities. There was a time that, you know, I felt that resistance 
you know, and you hear about it now when, you know, people talk about the need for diversity, that there's sometimes a resistance and the assumption that just because you're recruiting somebody, that you reached out for somebody, that that person is not qualified. And I certainly knew that I was qualified, that I belong there. And it was really kind of it wasn't funny at the time, but when I look back at <laughs> look back at it now, you know some of the, the the male agents who might have questioned whether or not I was qualified came through at a time into the bureau when there wasn't even testing. I mean, they came in and they got a job as a clerk. Uh, you know, and that worked around the office. And at some point, the head of the office sent him down to Quantico. And so they didn't have any prior law experience. They might have been clerking while they went to college. And so they, you know, they, their only work experience was as a clerk at the FBI. And I wish I had thought about that at the time. You're questioning my qualifications? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> was there a specific incident or case, or was it just a, a matter of time where you gained the respect and they started to see you just as an equal of you're in the bureau with me? You know, I had to admit that that came when I started to feel less like an imposter, when I realized that I belong there and that the things that were being said and being done and the way I was being treated, you know, was unacceptable. And the the funny thing is, and I've told this story a, a number of times, is that I was thinking of quitting about four years in because I was broken just, I just, I couldn't seem to get my footing. You know, things were being said. I was moved around. I just couldn't find my place in the FBI. And that time period in 1986, four years after I had been in, one of the uh, agents that I went through training school with, Jerry Dove, was killed in the Miami shootout. And I don't know, it was devastating. And I had talked to him off and on. We, we were the Jerry's in class. He, I was in Sacramento. He was in San Diego. My sister and I went down. We had some drinks with him. And when he went to transfer to Miami, I, you know, I talked to him uh, you know, a few times. And then I was walking through the squad area, and they had said that there was a, a shootout in Miami. You know, I thought, well, who and that two agents were killed. And I thought to myself, please don't say Jerry Dove. And they said Jerry Dove. And I was devastated to the point of it being like, why am I so gutted, you know? And it was because I was going to, I was thinking about quitting and I couldn't quit at that point because he had made the ultimate sacrifice for the Bureau. And so I stayed. And at the same time period, shortly after, the special agent in charge of the Philadelphia office, because I'm in Philadelphia at this time, comes to me and he wants me to be the applicant coordinator, which is the person who manages the agent hiring program. And I thought to myself, what is this about? I've only been in four years. That's a job that usually agents get when they're in 20 years. And it's almost like, you know, they're phasing themselves out so that they can go to these career fairs to find another job. They're not looking for applicants. They're looking for applications. (laughs) Exactly. And so it was like, oh, here we go again. Me feeling like a token, 
You know, I that that's what I had been feeling my first four years that I was being asked to travel around the country, you know, to Detroit and Phoenix and Dallas to, to do recruiting. And I hadn't done anything yet. You know, I, I hadn't I'd been moved around so much from squad to squad and assignment to assignment that I hadn't made, you know, enough arrest or I didn't feel like I had and that I hadn't done a lot of investigations. And now you're going to pull me away from the field work to do this. But when the SAC asks you to do something, you just say, (laughs) okay. And so I did that. And during the three years that I did that assignment, I recruited myself. Now, I, in telling recruits who we were and, you know, who the FBI is and, and what we do, I recruited myself. And then after three years of doing it, I just begged them, please let me go back to investigations. And once I got back and onto a squad, I mean, you couldn't stop me. You it's could not like stop me. It's almost a daily affirmation that you, yes. you're telling someone else <laughs> and then you're, it's coming back to you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And after that point, you couldn't stop me. I mean, I was, uh, you know, a go-getter, a self-starter anyway. I mean, that's why I did so well in that recruitment job. Our, our numbers were never below number two. There was New York office that had lots of people doing the job. And there was Philadelphia and Philadelphia was right behind New York as far as bringing recruits into the FBI and, and, and going down to uh, the FBI Academy. And I took that same work ethic that I had always had, you know, whether it was growing up or in college or whatever, uh, or as a probation officer, and I put it into that job. And then when I got back into investigations into my my cases, and you couldn't stop me, I was on fire. And I think that's that's a good life lesson for for anybody who happens to be listening. But I'm going to say, especially for the younger listeners, that whatever task you're given, there is importance in the task. Even if it's maybe not what you want or what you aspire, give it your due diligence. Do your best there because it's very difficult. And let's be very frank here. If you already have people in your organization that, that question why you're there to begin with, whether or not you're qualified for the position, if you don't do well, then you've given credence to their argument. This is an opportunity to, for you to go out and show that you belong. Absolutely. And I felt that. And, you know, we talk about opportunities and and options. Uh, You know, those are those are present also um, in your job and in your occupation. You're always looking for that opportunity to show people what you got, you know, to show people, you know, what you can handle. Again, the first four years where I just felt like I was banging my head against <laughs> whether it's a glass ceiling or just, you know, or just a wall. I got, I, I got that, whatever it was that just shook me. And again, I think it had a lot to do with, with Jerry Dove's death. I went to uh, his funeral, you know, I was there and, you know, I had met his mother, of course, at graduation, I was there and I saw the devastation, you know, that she was going through, you know, just having that opportunity to take a look at what I wanted to do in the FBI, that has always been a motivator for me to remember not just Jerry, but all of the agents, all of the law enforcement officers who have, you know, made that ultimate sacrifice and to make sure that I do the profession justice. The legacy that they have established is is a very, very high standard. 
I think we as a profession, we need to be reminded of that regularly so that we do perform in a way that honors their sacrifice. Absolutely. Beautiful. So you, as I'm reading some of the stuff about your history, I am going to have to be honest with you. Uh, It talks about the investigation of a Ponzi scheme. Those types of investigations, and I think maybe that's one of the, the things that people don't understand about the FBI. And so I'm retired local law enforcement. Most of our investigations don't have the complexity or length of time that, that are associated with some of the investigations that you perhaps have. How does somebody, I, I, would, I would guess that you're very detail-oriented based upon your history, okay? <laughs> how, how, do, how do you stick with the grind over a period of months or even years in some cases to see the case successfully through prosecution? How, how do you maintain that get up and go day after day after day? I don't know what it is about me, but I love fraud cases. And I know there are you know, agents and, and police detectives that would rather stick a needle in their eye than to have to go through paper, <laughs> you know, boxes of paper, which now I guess a lot of it now is also just, you know, files on computers. They would hate that. But I always enjoyed it. You know, I was searching for gold. I was searching for treasure, you know, just trying to find those documents that would prove, you know, that a crime had been committed. Because that's one thing that people had to wrap their head around that I think fraud and corruption type cases are some of the most difficult and complex cases that law enforcement can work. Because before you can even start working on whether or not, you know, you can find out who did this crime, prove that that person did the crime. You got to prove that it was a crime. Absolutely. Was it just a, a misunderstanding? You know, is it just a legal issue? Right. What, what Was it a civil matter? Was it something that was unethical, but but doesn't rise to the level of a crime? So, so that oftentimes can take a while. Yes. And, you know, I've worked cases where, I really thought that I had something. And at the end, you know, you can still be charged federally in a civil matter. And I had one case like that where it was a company in Philadelphia that made this is going to this is not going to sound sexy, but I love this case. But they made cardboard for cardboard boxes. And what they were doing was making you pay for a weight of a box that you weren't getting what you paid for. And, and it was intentional. Can't even think of the terms now. I, I, I used to remember all the, the technical terms of weight and et cetera. But we were able to get a cooperating witness that talked about the amount of pulp and, you know, cardboard that they put into the, the pulping machines to create these boxes and that they did it, you know, intentionally shortchanged everyone. We were able to get that, but we weren't able to prove that the people who did it did it because the bosses told them to. That's a different type of protection of society, though, right? You're still protecting the the society with that type of investigation. You may not be throwing your body in front of a bullet, but there's still protection that's provided. Well, let me ask this question here. While that is extremely important and it's a crime and it's wrong, wouldn't your resources be uh, better used in things, uh, murders and, you know, that type of thing. Uh, that's just the layperson question that I'm asking here because that stuff's going on and there's tons of cases that still need to be solved. So uh, while th- the importance of that, it's a crime and it needs to be taken care of. You, you see the parallel that I'm trying to draw here? Corruption 
is the foundation for crime. Being unethical, being corrupt, willing to cheat people, that's the foundation of all crime. I mean, most murders occur because somebody is trying to get something of value from someone else. It's a foundational thing. It's, 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 yes. it's at the ground level. So if we ignore that, sure. okay. then what is going to happen to our society? And so, yeah, when you learn about somebody is cheating, at the end, I wasn't able to criminally charge anyone. But the company paid a $6 million fine when we took it civilly. Hmm. Jerry, to tell me if I'm, if I'm drawing a, a good parallel here, uh, I served several years assigned as a DEA task force officer. First of all, you got to learn the federal language when you go down there, right? So it's a, it's, it's a big change. But one of the things that they talked about was you had the, the illicit side investigation, but you also had the diversion side, which were the DA investigations involving those doctors and pharmacists and things like that. And to be very honest, there wasn't as many resources devoted to that side of the house as there was to the illicit side. And to me at the time, it made a lot of sense, you know, that the problem is more over here on the, the hard stuff. Until we got into the opioid. Opiate. I knew you were going to say that. Perhaps had we have done a better job on that other side up front, that we wouldn't be in the, the problems that we have right now. And all of the ramifications of the opioid epidemic involved violence, you know, and death and murder and people, home invasions and thefts in order to feed their habit. And so that's just a wonderful example of the foundation of those corrupt doctors, you know, giving out, you know, the pills to anybody who wanted them. If we had been able to get a hold of that, just think of how much would have been able to prevent, you know, some of these, uh, you know, more violent crimes, the normal stuff that law enforcement handles. We would have been able to get a handle on all of that if we had been able to deal more with the corruption at the beginning. It's interesting that it kind of dovetails back into what we're talking about with youth of getting in at the front end of things. And that's that's easy to talk about. But, you know, that takes manpower and it takes resources. And sometimes, you know, you only have enough manpower and resources to look at and to deal with what's right in front of your face at the time. And um, I don't know. And you talk about resources and perhaps that's one of those myths about the, the FBI that people need to understand is that while the FBI does have a tremendous amount of resources available, those are finite. And so that that's why they have established thresholds in a lot of types of investigations. And, you know, you get people all the time that they get pissed off at the, uh, you know, the local detective or the state detective. Well, I'm just going to go to the FBI. And it's like, uh, <laughs> listen, more power to you. But but understand, you know, when you talk about those types of investigations, you do have to set those things because, uh, as Brent pointed out, that there are times where those resources have to be allocated elsewhere. Yeah, I just had a conversation with a listener and I, I try, I get a lot of 
emails and, you know, social media comments from listeners about fraud cases, because I do feel that I'm, you know, got a lot of expertise. I worked those cases for, I was on one particular squad for 11 years on the economic crime squad for 11 years, and then went over to our Cherry Hill office out of Philadelphia and still worked that for another three years. So altogether, at least 14 years just doing economic crime, your Ponzi schemes, your embezzlements, your advance fee schemes, your business to business, telemarketing frauds. That's what I did. So I have a lot of expertise and knowledge about, you know, when the FBI investigates fraud, corruption and corporate corruption type cases. And so when I do hear from somebody that tells me about a fraud or something that a scam that happened to them, you know, it's so sad to be able to have to say to them that, you know, please, you know, file this complaint with the FBI, but they probably will not be able to take your case. Because, again, we only have so many, you know, agents and, 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 you know, manpower and resources, again, like you said, are finite. And there are not going to be enough people to handle your particular case. It's the, the dollar value does not meet the threshold. There was a, a statement that I, I found on your website, and I don't remember it exactly, but I thought it was incredibly telling about the importance of investigating these economic crimes. You know, with a gun, you can steal a hundred bucks, but with a lie, you can steal a million. And w- when you start looking at it, in terms I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to uh, trademark that because I made that up. Yeah, I'm telling <laughs> you, but, but it's, inc- it's incredibly powerful. And, 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 you know, also talking about, because w- one of the things that you received an award for was an economic investigation. In fact, you, you, you were interviewed uh, on the show American Greed. And I, I love, I love the title. And, and, you know, some people are so much better at this than I am. When greed and giving collide. Yes. And so, so what was that case about that you were interviewed there? Yeah, that was the Ponzi scheme, the $350 million Ponzi scheme. And it was an absolutely unbelievable case to work because this was a man, the subject was a man who had been known through in the Philadelphia area as a person doing good deeds. He was helping nonprofits learn how to use their money wisely and how to get funding, you know, not only from uh, government sources and grants, but also from philanthropists and donors. And at some point, something happened and he got caught up in the power of helping people find money and get money that he started this thing where if you give him money, he will hold on to it to prove that you don't need it for your capital growth, that this is for other acts of good, and he will have an anonymous donor match your funding and send it to you. And this was like, we're, we're not talking about a little bit of money. You send him 500000 you let him keep it for six months, he'll send you a million. That's what it was. And it grew outside the Philadelphia. It grew to mostly Christian organizations throughout the country. And so this was a charity Ponzi scheme. You can't even say those two words oh in the goodness. same in the same breath. And he goes three hundred and fifty million. And that was one of the, the my crime novels. It's called Greedy Givers. That I took that case that I worked on and I fictionalized it and created this case as a way for me to try to answer how this man 
did that, how he went wrong. It was a fascinating case, and I think I did a good job in writing the book and, you know, and, and trying to, to tell that story, you know, in a fictionalized way. But, but you know, Jerry, you, you talk about the, the suspect was a guy who was known for doing good deeds, but it, sometimes something changed. But his victims were organizations that were known for doing good things. And when you talk about limited resources, there are resources that were given to him that no longer could be used for perhaps one of those programs where we can do that intervention with a kid early in life. And now that that's something that's no longer available. Nobody was shot, but it certainly had impact. And somebody may have paid a price later down the line because of that activity. Absolutely. And I'm so glad we keep coming back, you know, in in the circle of life, (laughs) circle of crime, that this ethics and corruption and greed are all the foundation for every other crime that is done. You know, it, it is the foundation where somebody, a home invasion or a carjacking, it's all about greed. And so all levels of that, you have got to, you know, to, to monitor and, and to investigate. Because if our leaders, if our corporate leaders, people in the community, whether they be, you know, politicians or, you know, heads of company, if we allow them on that bigger scale which is going to have even more of an impact. We're talking millions. We're not talking about hundreds. You know, if we allow them to get a pass, then that's all going to trickle down and things are going to be even worse and wilder than you can imagine. I mentioned that uh, you're a fellow podcaster and you've been doing this longer than a lot of folks. I know there's been a podcasting boon as of, as, as of late, but uh, your podcast is called FBI Retired Case File Review. And I noticed in your 50th episode, you dedicated uh, an entire episode to uh, the myths around the FBI. And then you did it again in your 100th episode. And I'm just assuming maybe that was the catalyst for you writing your book. Would I be correct in saying that? Absolutely. I had done those two episodes, basically because I realized that what most people know about the FBI, they get from books, TV and movies. The same thing with law enforcement in general. You know, they think they know everything because they watch the TV show. <laughs> and, you know, in the 50th and 100th episodes of, of the podcast, we talked about it. And then I was talking to somebody, an entertainment uh, attorney, and he was the one who said to me, you know, why don't you have a book about this? This would be a great book. And I had already written at that time, the two crime novels. And I thought, yeah, I could do this. And I think the audio book is even better because the audio book is interspersed with me talking and then actual audio clips from the podcast. And so uh, I really enjoyed uh, and enjoyed writing that book and, and doing that because, you know, and this, this is the same thing basically that you're trying to do uh, on your podcast. It's so important for us and law enforcement to tell our stories. Humanize. Yes, absolutely. It is just so important. Um, and there's a saying in writing and crime writing and, no- and writing novels, which is show, don't tell. And so you can sit there and be on the news and, you know, lecture somebody about what law enforcement does and how important it is. But when you can show it, 
by sharing a story, by talking about the sacrifices and the dedication and the things that were done to get a particular case accomplished, uh, successful, then that's when you're actually showing somebody. You're not lecturing them. And it means so much. And so in looking at these misconceptions and these cliches and being allowing the different agents to come on and show the reality of what it is to investigate a case, you know, to be an FBI agent means so much more to the listener than reading about it in the news or, or someplace uh, where it is doesn't hit them emotionally. One of my favorite things you sent us in advance, or you sent us a copy of, of the book that we got to read through. And one of my favorite things in the book is you kind of break down all these different pop culture TV shows and movies and then you go through and you kind of dissect, okay, this doesn't hit the mark and this isn't quite right. But one that I found that you actually thought was really quite well done was the Netflix series Mindhunter, which I love. That was a great, uh, great series. Yeah. And that goes back to my number one cliche, which probably sometimes I go between number one and number two. But number, number one was that FBI profilers hunt down serial killers. And the reality is that a profiler is a consultant. You know, that person is going to come in to talk to agents and detectives and investigators in a situation where a case appears to be unsolvable. And they're going to go through all. You're talking about paper, looking at paper, but they're going to go through the entire file and try to figure out what they can find out that will help the investigator solve this case. You know, give them an idea what this person may look like, where they may work, where they may frequent, you know, just give them as much information as possible. And, you know, sometimes they may go to the scene. Sometimes they may meet with all the officers on site. But in most cases, it's a consultation. And I think they did a good job in Mindhunter of showing it that way. They, they were showing you how they developed the profiles. And then in season two, when they were doing the uh, Atlanta murders, they were working with the case agent, who was in charge of the investigation to help him identify from victims, from witnesses, who the murderer might be. People that, you know, the naysayers, you always have naysayers. They say, well, you know, look how when they're wrong. What's important to remember is in many of these cases, they have zero to start with. Law enforcement has zero to start with, and this gives you a direction that you can get. And I'm showing Jerry, I know our listeners can't see it. One of my favorite books that I've had for a long time is Mindhunter by John Douglas. A fantastic read. I actually got to go to a course that he put on. I found it fascinating. Brent told you his favorite part of the book. I got to tell you mine. Uh, one of your myths. One of your myths that you had was that the FBI can wiretap anybody anytime. And the reason why that one hit home to me so much was when I was with DEA, our case, we ended up doing title threes, which are, are the, the wiretaps on 26 different phone numbers over the course of the investigation. And when people, you know, they're like, oh, that's so cool. You get to listen in and stuff like that. I said, okay, let's let, let's do away with the cool part first, okay? N number one, in the Eastern District of Michigan, the affidavit for the title three was usually around 100 pages long. And that had to be done on a monthly basis. And then you add on to that the Eastern District of Michigan, they wanted a 15-day report 
showing what had been done. So that was another 50 pages just to be able to listen. And Jerry, if I never hear this again, it'll be too soon because the software that was in use at the time you know, if you're listening uh, in on a phone conversation on Title Three, and there's something that's not related to criminal activity, you know, they're talking about the family, you're supposed to minimize. mute it. Yep. And that software, then you said the word minimize, minimize. <laughs> and you sit there and listen, you pop back in. It's like, just hang up the phone. If we're not going to talk about something good, I don't want to minimize, minimize, minimize. Yes. <laughs> so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. I've sat on many a wire myself. <laughs> well, and then you know, it's funny in movies and in TV, they always show the wiretap room as this elaborate, comfortable place, you know, with, with or a van. Yeah, it was it was a closet. It was a closet. And there was nothing worse than getting the shift on night shift. Sitting there. Oh, my goodness. It's never going to end. But you couldn't walk away because, you know, as soon as you walked away, what's going to happen? That phone call was going to come in. And like you bring up a great point because I've been talking about working, you know, fraud investigations for the majority of my career. But I need to make sure people understand that as an agent, you are a body. And so if they need someone to do a drug raid or, you know, to do a organized crime surveillance or to do a, a foreign counter, you know, intelligence uh, uh, survey, if they need a body, you go. So I have done my share of banging in doors in Camden, New Jersey for drug raids. I have done my share of, you know, of, of high level uh, interrogations and interviews interviews because, again, there are not a lot of black females. And if they felt that being a person of color and a woman was vital or would work in this particular situation, then I got called <laughs> and I went. So I have done everything that you could possibly think of that the FBI is involved in. I have done it. But I have spent my time and I've learned and I've been trained and I have the expertise in working, uh, you know, frauds and scams. But I've done I've done a lot, you know, in the FBI. Would you agree with me that one of the things that the FBI provides that, that a lot of local agencies can't simply because of their resources, it allows people oftentimes to work in their area of passion. It seems like you're passionate about economic investigations that that finding the people that are causing this harm. Perhaps you get that in that agency that you maybe don't get in some other smaller agencies. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, that's the great thing about the FBI. I don't, it's, it's hundreds of violations that we work. And of course, again, I've said this before, you're a body when you first get there. So you may be assigned to, I, I was assigned to work fraud cases uh, almost immediately. First, it was government fraud, which I hate it because there was no true victim. The victim was the government. And that's a big victim. But there was no passion. I wasn't able to talk to somebody. I wasn't able to feel the loss, you know, that they had suffered. But I worked government fraud, you know, initially in Sacramento. And when I first got to Philadelphia, and then later on, you know, I was put on this economic crime squad. When you talk about the charity Ponzi scheme, I mean, I was talking to you know, heads of company that were in tears, that were crying because they were so embarrassed that they had been caught up in this Ponzi scheme and that they had lost the institution or the nonprofit that they were hoping to give to, to donate to, and they had lost money. 
And so you can't help but feel how important those cases are when you're talking to people who have suffered such a loss. There is nothing worse than talking to an elderly couple who have been scammed out of their life savings. Absolutely. You you know you're doing good work. You know you're doing valuable law enforcement investigations when you can help somebody at least get a portion of their money back, which, of course, is not you know, the goal of our case, the goal is to have somebody suffer the consequences of their illegal actions. But if we can get some money back or just help somebody know that they're not alone, that they're not the only victim, that they weren't stupid. You know, they were taken advantage yes. of in a way by a professional, by a professional. Yes. By a professional. yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I, I love what you said just uh, at, towards the beginning, that, that corruption is the basis. It's the foundation for all these other things. And, and I think one of the things that illustrates it best recently is is all the COVID fraud. I mean, if we, oh, if yes. we talk about a time in our American history where I, I think maybe not since the Great Depression have we seen economic impact at this broad of a scale than we did then. These investigations, I mean, the number, I I subscribe to the DOJ press release section, so I get several emails a day. I cannot believe the breadth and the depth of the fraud that went on and is still being uncovered and it's still being investigated. Thank goodness it's still being prosecuted. But I'm like you, I, I think I would struggle with that type of investigation, not because it's not a righteous investigation, but because it's hard to identify with the victim when the victim is, is the government. Yes, yes. Somebody has to work those cases. Yeah, God bless them. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody has to work those cases, but being able to to interact and feel that I'm helping somebody, I am a very... And this is this is a positive thing, I think. But I, I think I'm a maternal person. You know, I, I'm a caring person. I, I could be tough. <laughs> think about your mother. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. I'm scared to death of mine. Yeah. She was yeah. here last yeah. week. So when, when you say maternal, that doesn't, it doesn't mean soft. It doesn't mean gentle. It just means, you know, caring and that you come in and you can take charge. I, I need that interaction with victims. I need that interaction with, with subjects, you know, to be able to talk to people and to get an understanding of who they are and try to, you know, make things better and to, and to work things out. And I'm going to go back to podcasting. That's why I love what I do so much. And I've been doing this now for seven and a half years and it's going to, I'm close to 300 episodes. It's because I'm retired now. I'm not involved. (laughs) Quasi retired. As somebody said the other day, I, I, I'm a failure at retirement. (laughs) I think somebody said that on your pod, one of the podcast episodes I was listening to. I'm a, I'm a big failure (laughs) at retirement because not only am I writing books, I'm podcasting, I'm blogging about, you know, the FBI and books, TV and movies. And now I got this new job that I've been doing for the last couple of years of TV consulting, which right now I'm not doing because the industry yes. is at a, at, a, at a standstill. Well, you bring up a good point. I, I'm, I wanted to mention one more thing from your book, which I found interesting. You wrote that most scriptwriters have never met an FBI agent, which I thought, that can't be true. They, somebody's <laughs> got to consult with somebody in order to get these things right. That's, is, is that, cor- I, I mean, that's crazy. I, there are many, many shows on TV that 
you know, just somebody wrote, well, just like, you know, my fellow novelists, you know, sometimes you just write a book and you base it on what you think you learn, what, what you think you know, and what you know comes from other books, TV shows and movies. I do think that when a TV producer or scriptwriter goes out of their way to get a consultant, you know, that will make that show even better. But they don't necessarily have to listen to what we have to say. Because for them, and I agree with this for the most part, the story is the most important thing. Entertaining is the most important thing. You hope they try to get it right. But I think of the show Chicago PD, which I do not watch, but it's one of my husband's favorite shows. (laughs) One day I was watching it. He had it on. I wasn't (laughs) watching it, but it was on. And I could just see, it was like, well, the head of the organization of the task force or whatever was like the most corrupt person. And he was doing things that were just illegal. And I thought, we've got all these people watching this show and this is what they think the policing is. And it's a problem. It's a huge problem. (laughs) Yeah. Gary Nesner said something similar. He said, you know, the overall nucleus of uh, Waco was correct, but there's a lot of things they took uh, poetic license with. That yes, kind of thing. yes, and that happens all the time. I had to go back and brag a little bit because you mentioned you you held up your book with uh, John Douglas. Yes, you know I've had him on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> Incredibly fascinating guy. His yes, his mind is. works in a way that I won't say is scary, but it's much different than mine. Yeah, I was able to. Uh, have a conversation with them. The whole interview was arranged through a publicist. And she told me I had like, you know, a half an hour with him. And I thought to myself, my podcasts are long like yours, because that's how long it takes to, to get the whole story out. And I thought, well, that's just not enough. And so I'm talking to him. And I say to him, you know, I know we're, we're near the end. Can we keep talking? And he was like, sure. We ended up talking like for an hour and a half. <laughs> it's always the PR people that do that. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I I'll ignore them from now on, and, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, was able to really uh, get into a great conversation with him. Um, I've had Gary Nesner on twice myself. I, I try to, you know, tell a variety of stories from the FBI. And I think that if I were just to talk about murder and missing persons, I probably, and the podcast does well, I'm going to be hitting 10 million downloads by the, uh, uh, by the end of the year. So the podcast is doing well for it just being me. I mean, I don't have all of these producers. And <laughs> <laughs> we just give our <laughs> titles on this, this podcast. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's nobody here, but me, but and I don't know, I, I don't know where we are going, but I'm going to go back to my original of, of why I'm doing this, you know, because uh, I just started putting ads on my show last year. Yeah, yeah, just at the end of last year. I wasn't, I wasn't doing this at all to make money, even though I could have monetized years ago, because it was more of a, a mission, a mission to show everyone who the FBI is and what the FBI does. I started the show in 2016. To be honest, I just was trying to sell books. I thought if I start a podcast, by the time my book comes out, you know, six, nine months later, I'll have potential readers. But then in 2016, we had the political, we had the uh, campaign, the election, we had the election and the issues that came up with that. And as I could see people not understanding who the FBI was, 
it became this mission that I had to tell these stories. And again, I don't have any politics on my shows. I am nonpartisan. I have my own views. I do not express them on my show because I truly want people with all thoughts and ideas and opinions to listen. Again, because I want to show you. I don't want to tell you who the FBI is. I want to show you the work that we do. And so uh, it's become a mission for me to, to do this. At one point when I was doing it weekly, and I did it weekly for the first like four years, I realized I can't keep this. It was like when I was a juvenile probation officer, I cannot keep this pace up anymore. I can't do this all. So now I do it every other week. But it is so important to tell our stories in law enforcement and for first responders. First, it preserves institutional knowledge. You know, as, as you have a law enforcement officer or a first responder and the law enforcement officers, you know, tell their story, they are sharing, you know, techniques and knowledge and expertise that somebody who's in law enforcement today may be able to use that they didn't think of. And so, again, number one reason is to preserve that institutional knowledge that could be in a file someplace that nobody would ever learn about if you don't come out and share your story. Another reason to share your story is to help with the positive perception of law enforcement. You know, this is what you hear. This is the truth. You know, this is, or maybe what you hear is truth, but look at all this other stuff, you know, that, that law enforcement, the positive, the good stuff that law enforcement does. And so you, you want to make sure that you can contribute to the positive perception. And then the last thing is your own personal legacy. There are so many people in law enforcement who their own families have no idea what they do every day. They don't share. They don't talk. Jerry, a last plug here for, for your, your podcast. One of my favorite episodes uh, recently has been the one on the labor union. Huh. Okay. Spoiler alert. Okay. Just going to say spoiler alert here. At the end, I thought one of the best things was, hey, you know what they found out after all this corruption, after all this stuff was going on, was that if they would have just gone about it legitimately, <laughs> that, that they could have made much more money. It's like mic drop, walk away, because it's like, <laughs> hey, dummies, all that stuff you went to go, uh, it's just, it's amazing to me. But we, we go back and we'll wrap things up here, but we go back too often, people continue doing the things that they grew up with. What, what they were exposed to. And I think that that probably was the case here. You've got these generations in these labor rackets that that's the way they've always done business, even to their own detriment. And, and we have to do better in society. Absolutely. I have to tell you, sometimes people ask me what my favorite episode, my favorite episode has not been posted yet. All my children, I have three kids and they uh, were adopted as infants, my son right from the, the nursery. And I have been begging and begging a former colleague to do, uh, come on and do a case review about his adoption fraud case. Ooh. And I'm telling you, I was in tears the entire time that he reviewed that case. And so that will be coming up soon. That really showcases the work 
that law enforcement does. It really showcases how important it is for fraud cases and corruption cases and greed cases to be investigated. And if you can listen to that episode, uh, the agent was uh, Darren Workmeister. And again, it hasn't, it hasn't, it probably will have been posted by the time this is posted. If you have any question about why working fraud and scam cases is important, Listen to that episode. Make sure you have a box of tissues nearby. Well, you've listened to us then because Brent and I, we are criers. But but uh, w- w- what's the, as we wrap it up, what, what's, what's your website address? People want to go and find out more about your books and about your podcast. Yes, it's jerrywilliams.com. Very easy. J-E-R-R-I williams.com. And I have everything there. You can listen to the podcast. You can buy, you know, you can find out where you can buy my books. You can read my blog where I break down TV shows and movies about the FBI and use them as teachable moments. Everything's there. Jerrywilliams.com. For our listeners, I can't recommend highly enough for you going and visiting there. Uh, you're going to be entertained. Uh, you're, you're probably going to be appalled, to be very honest with you, with some of the investigations that have had to be undertaken because of the, the acts of, of people who, well, they're not very good. And, and now we find out that there's going to be at least one episode where you're going to cry. But I promise you. Oh, there's many, many, <laughs> many episodes where you'll cry. I promise you, though, it will not be a waste of your time. Jerry, we can't thank you enough for being with us today. Thank you for your service. Thank you for what you have done in the past. But I also want to personally say thank you for what you're continuing to do because your message is valuable. And it I can't think of a time where it's been any more needed than right now. So thank you. Thank you. And I just want to reiterate the website, jerrywilliams.com. And I want to mention your books because I think those are important too. your uh, crime fiction books, pay to play. Greedy Givers, you can check those out. We'll put them in the show notes. Folks can uh, get those. And also uh, the book we talked about earlier, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. You'll definitely want to check it out, Jerry. It's been a pleasure, a lot of fun. You're a joy to have on. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. This was great. Great.